Welcome to the State of the Lakers podcast. Thank you guys for coming to hang out and talk some basketball with Raj and I on this very busy NBA news morning between Team USA losing again and the Ben Simmons trade request. Or not, I shouldn't say trade request, the front office openly shopping Ben Simmons um, to the extent that they're telling Shams Sharania. Uh, and then Raj just informed me about some news about Lonzo Ball and him potentially leaving New Orleans um, that I was unaware of until just now. So we got a lot of stuff we're going to talk about today, um, but we're going to start by uh, talking about uh, the game three of the NBA Finals on Sunday. But first, Raj, how are you doing on this morning? How was your weekend? It was great. Yeah, I'm doing good. It, it's weird to like try to transition back to video. Like I know the podcast listeners, um, they don't see the video, but just for us, so used to doing spaces and now like we're on video now. So it's like a it's like a funny adjustment back to being on camera. Um, you have to look somewhat kind of presentable when you come up here. You can't just you can't just wally onto the spaces on Twitter. Um, so it, it's fun to be back, though. Yeah, exactly. The the space has allowed us to slum it a little bit. That is for that is for sure. But uh, d- don't worry. After this off season, we will return to doing mostly spaces um, in our post game shows during hopefully a much a much uh, more positive and yeah. good luck oriented Lakers season next year. Anyway, so we're going to start by talking about uh, game three on Sunday. I continue again. I, I I'm not always right. Everyone's wrong a lot of the time, including myself. I'm going to brag a lot in this series because I've been right so far. I've predicted every single outcome in every single game so far. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the uh, the Bucks, you know, kind of seizing control of this series and showing some, you know, uh, problems in 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 Phoenix's design that they're able to physically exploit. And while I I do think that that is the reason why they were able to win. In that particular game, I think this is just textbook NBA playoff series in a nutshell. I've seen this so many times over the years. You know, uh, Team USA, which we're going to talk about later, is such a great example of the difference in motivational advantage. You know, you win basketball games by doing all of these things, these little things, not just scoring the basketball. And, you know, if you don't have people that are willing to do those little things, you can lose games to teams with less talent. And and similar to obviously with with this FIBA thing, it's a much bigger talent gap and a much bigger issue. But when it comes to this playoff series, you've got the better team, which is Phoenix, who's up two games to none going into Milwaukee, playing against a desperate team. So they are more willing to do those little things. They're more willing to be more physical, to be more aggressive, to to feed off of the energy of the crowd. And so then all of a sudden this gap manifests in their effort. And all of a sudden a team that pretty much got handled in the first two games wins by 20. Uh, I So my impression, you know, from the over-the-top kind of macro sense is just that this was a textbook progression of a playoff series. Did you think it was something bigger than that, or did you just think it was kind of the thing I'm talking about? So, like, we both like to tie it back to what happens on the court, too, right? Like, all that playing harder and stuff, that that's all true, and I think it has a domino effect as well. Um, we always talk about how the more physical team gets the calls or gets or doesn't get the call, whatever way you want to look at it. I really thought DeAndre Ayton's um, fourth foul kind of changed the whole game, in my opinion. It was back and forth. Phoenix was coming back a little bit. He picked up his fourth foul with 10.25 left to go in the third. 
I don't believe he played the third quarter and then the Bucks just ran the score up. And I think that really has a cumulative effect. It allowed the Bucks to go small without the consequence of going small on the other end. So it allowed them to play the Giannis at the five, not worrying have to not worrying about a rim roller, not worrying about offensive rebounds. Kaminsky got destroyed in his minutes. I didn't I didn't really understand those minutes at all. Um, he was like a minus 14 in five minutes, which shouldn't even be possible. But yeah, like, and again, all that stuff you said is true. The home crowd really put them on their back. Giannis had a legendary, another legendary performance. His numbers in these series is absolutely insane. They have no one to guard him. And I don't think that was ever true. Like, I don't think they ever had someone to guard him, but without Aiden, um, on the floor, that really shows. So I think you're right. All that playing hard and stuff is true. I just think like that, the game changed to me when Aiden picked up his fourth foul and Monty decided, I don't know. There's different philosophies on that. I thought that's a little bit of overreaction to just not play him because of who backs him up. Like you're, you're going to lose anyway. You know, you'll lose if you play with Kaminsky. Uh, you, I would have rather just took the chance on Aiden, but that, that's where I kind of saw. Did you see anything else uh, on the floor that, that you thought really impacted game three? Or, or just play tiny. Like, but like if, if you can't, you know, they played Kaminsky because their their whole you know structure is built around this like four out one in concept yeah. concept with a big and it's like you know uh, if if you're gonna get boat raced with Kaminsky at the five you might as well put Crowder at the five and just put all your wings out there and you know maybe just by you can jank up the game a little bit and and uh, and win that way but I'm with you I, like you know. Uh, overreacting to foul trouble is one of the stupidest things in the world. It makes way more sense to do it in the college game when egos are more in favor of the referees. Like in college, like a ref's not going to think twice about fouling a dude out of a game if he thinks he sees a foul. But in the pros, you know, there's a little bit more of a discretionary thing going on with the refs where they'll look at a guy like DeAndre Ayton with four fouls and be a little bit more lenient. And, you know, Ayton can go up to the refs and be like, hey, you know, I'm just going to stand here with my arms up. I'm not going to be reaching at all, you know, blah, 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 blah. And he might get the benefit of the doubt on a lot of those types of calls. So I'm with you. I think that's always a big strategic flaw. You know, I thought this game was super interesting because it, it kind of was it was it was breaking down like a typical game three where, you know, Milwaukee was playing with a lot more physical energy. A lot of their baskets early in the game were were around the basket offensive rebounds, you know, Giannis and pick and roll catching and finishing around the rim. But what kept Phoenix in control, because they were up 36 to 30 at one point, was Chris Paul was still just in this ridiculous mid-range rhythm where he was making Mm -hmm. everything he was taking in that 15 to 22 feet range, even when it was contested. And then you had DeAndre Ayton just destroying Milwaukee on both ends of the floor. Like he's such a problem for them. And I think it's the most interesting subplot of this series. I tweeted these stats out yesterday, but one of the big reasons, one of the, uh, one of the big reasons why the bucks were able to swing the Hawks series and the net series, even though they trailed was, uh, um, by going to Giannis at the five in lineups with, with Giannis at the five, against those two teams. They were plus 17 points per 100 possessions against Brooklyn and plus 29 points per 100 possessions against Atlanta. But in this matchup, because of Aiton and their inability Mm -hmm. to guard him, they're minus 9.5 points per 100 possessions with Giannis at the five. There was a sequence right at the first TV timeout. They took Brooke Lopez out, put Giannis at the five. Aiton immediately burned them on a little hook shot on a switch over... Mm -hmm. uh, 
I think it was over Connaughton. And then the very next possession, he has a deep seal on Drew Holiday, just turns and lays it into the basket. And then the next possession, he got an offensive rebound, and then Bud immediately put Bobby Portis in. So that that was that was carrying over through that first stretch of the game uh, uh, on Sunday. And then, like you said, after after Aiden got in foul trouble, those lineups started to have more success. But everything was going Phoenix's way because of how dominant Aiden was and because of how dominant Chris Paul was. And then Milwaukee just completely took over in the middle of the second quarter. And honestly, you know who was fantastic was Drew Holiday in that stretch. Uh, unbelievable defensively. And then Drew Holiday had kind of like a, a uncharacteristically great game as a passer which I think is one mm-hmm. of his limitations as a guard compared to some of his peers. But like he was unbelievable passing the basketball in that second quarter. He had a sequence where the Suns were down five after a campaign and one. It was 40 to 35. And after the and one, uh, Chris Middleton takes a terrible pull-up 22-footer, and it leads to a two-on-one fast break. And Pat Connaughton blows up the two-on-one fast break. Drew Holiday pushes it in transition and makes a really nice, like, Falling out of bounds, bounce pass into the corner to P.J. Tucker, nails a three. Then Drew Holiday blocked Devin Booker underneath the basket, and then that's when they had that crazy fast break where he threw the behind-the-back pass and yeah. then dropped it off to Bobby Portis for a dunk. That was literally a seven-point turnaround, and it completely changed the game. and went from Phoenix being right there to all of a sudden you're down 12. And it was just uh, – it was kind of like a, like, a, like a wave of energy that just Phoenix couldn't really match, if that makes sense. No, for sure. And we always talk about, it, like, the home and road splits for, like, Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton shooting. Like, Drew Holiday hit five threes last night, five for ten from three. I think those are shots that, like – uh, the Suns live with him still taking like that. He he hit a bunch of like step back kind of threes. Those are shots I feel like they win with if he has if he takes those shots, the defense kind of wins. So like I feel like it's tough. To, I don't know what really to take from uh, Milwaukee's offense other than like Giannis scoring forty. I think they'll live with that. Like you obviously want to try to stop him, but like I feel like you can still win with Giannis uh, scoring forty. Chris Milton six for fourteen. Like they're still kind of shutting him down. I thought the biggest key, in, in my opinion, was Bud kind of limiting Brooke Lopez minutes. Once Aiden went out with foul trouble, he really didn't play Brooke Lopez. It was mostly just Giannis at the five, full time switching everything. We saw a lot, a lot of Giannis on Chris Paul, Giannis on Devin Booker, and he was really able to impact them. Chris Paul still hit a bunch of tough shots. He had like a one left to right crossover fadeaway over Giannis, um, and I think Devin Booker will play better as well. Devin Booker was what three four. Uh, three for 14 in that game, one for seven from three. Like he's been kind of hot and cold a little bit lately, right? I feel like he's, he's had big scoring games and he has like really tough shooting nights. I think that's where the Phoenix kind of pushed their head on. So where, where do you see like for game four, do you see Phoenix winning, winning game four? Yeah, I think Phoenix will win the next two games. I, the, a couple of things like uh, Booker was actually getting half decent shot quality. You could just tell the overall physicality of the game was wearing on him a bit and he was missing shots. You know, you and I, after game two, talked about how Milwaukee didn't necessarily need to change what they were doing. They just needed to do it better. Yeah. And when I, what I noticed when I was watching that game and, and when I rewatched it was just how much better Milwaukee was at all these simple things. Like a lot of their drop coverages with Brooke Lopez actually kind of worked. And the reason why is the dude chasing uh, Chris Paul or Devin Booker over the screen just did a better job of getting over the screen and hounding the ball handler so that Brooke didn't have to come up as high. And if Brooke doesn't have to come up as high, he can then shut off the paint, which then throws everything else in that in, in Phoenix's action off. And so from that standpoint, 
you know, that's a, that's kind of an effort thing. A lot of that mm-hmm. stuff, a, a lot of that, a lot of that stuff, you know, when you look at projecting forward in the series, chances are Phoenix is going to come out with uh, a, a lot better intensity. They did not shoot the ball at all. We talked, you mentioned early in, earlier in the podcast that, you know, the physically aggressive team is the one that gets the foul calls. The yeah. team that, the, the team that is putting pressure on the other team physically is generally going to get rewarded with free throws. And guess what? After Phoenix was the team that controlled the free throw line in the, uh, in Phoenix here in Milwaukee in game three, Milwaukee's the more physically aggressive team. They're the team that's getting to the line more that I think is going to swing back in Phoenix's favor in this next game. I also think like, you know, uh, just in general with Giannis, as Chris Paul mentioned in his post-game interview, they just didn't do a good job of building that wall around the rim. There was just a there was a sloppiness to some of the basic principles that you need to slow down Giannis. And so I just I, in, in a similar way to to the way Mil, Milwaukee just did a better job in Game Three with all of their things that they need to do. I think Phoenix is going to do a better job in in game four and they didn't get anything out of really anybody other than Aiton and Chris Paul and even Aiton struggled after the first 15 minutes of the game so I think I still feel relatively confident that Phoenix is going to win by right around 10 points in game four and then blow their doors off in game five that's what I expect to happen yeah and Aiton is averaging like 40 minutes a game in this series he had 24 minutes um in game in game three eight for 11 in 24 minutes is insanely uh efficient and he's really their Giannis Garter in my opinion him and Jay Crowder but like when they get Cam Johnson on a switch like it's just or whoever else is switching on uh switching on to uh Giannis it's just over Giannis is too strong also Giannis going 13 for 17 from the free throw line I thought was a big part of this game it really helps him out his aggression continues when he's hitting free throws I don't think he'll hit at at that rate going forward as well that I think that's really a big domino for them when he gets his free throw rate going up and he gets assists from that he gets passes out um and I think Bud kind of we talked about early Bud's a guy that reacts to the series he doesn't punch first I thought he really did a nice job Bryn Forbes played I think three four minutes last night Brooke Lopez 20 minutes I think that's where if the Bucks are going to make this series that's kind of have to go 40 minutes for all their starters PJ Tucker 30 minutes um he hit one corner three last night so I I don't know. They got really good shooting from everybody. Like, I don't know how sustainable that is going into uh, game four. And I feel like the Suns feel pretty well. Devin Booker, like you said, man, I was watching. He took the shots that he gets. Like, those are the shots he's looking to get to. Um, he just missed them. And uh, he can do. He can go like that. He can go cold. Um, but I thought he got the shots he wanted. And I think the Suns live with those jumpers from uh, Drew Holiday. And yeah, Chris he got Milken. better shot quality than Drew Holiday. Drew's just went in. Yeah, exactly. Like, Three free throws combined for Drew Holiday and Chris Milton. And I think Chris Milton got it on a – he was fouled on three-point attempt, I believe, because he has three free throws total. And I it was his first he, first free throws of the series. <laughs> it, it, yeah, and Drew Holiday, zero free throws last night. Like, he had an amazing game, eight for 14, zero free throws. Like, I Well, think he was passing time, when he got to the rim, too. I think that was a big part. He was jump shot heavy and then driving to pass. Is what that's very doing. true. And he, he had a bunch of big jumpers. But, again, those shots I think they live with. Like, Drew Holiday is not the – level of shooter to where I'm comfortable with him taking step back threes in transition and thinking that's um, that can work going forward. So I think I like where Phoenix is as well. I feel like they win, uh, they win game four. So in the last thing I wanted to say about, uh, uh, about the bucks, Chris Middleton in particular, 
you and I talked a lot about Chris Middleton in the last pod, and I made a point of, of, of talking about how his tendency is to want to turn his back to the basket when he has a, yeah. when he has a mismatch and try to take a jump shot. So he got isolated onto campaign three times in the first half by my count. And uh, the first one was in the first quarter, and he got campaign on his hip and took a turnaround fadeaway and missed it. And he had not done anything at the rim to that point in the game. It was literally his one of his first shots of the game, had a great mismatch, could have got to the rim, didn't, took a fadeaway, missed it. So then start of the second quarter, same thing, gets isolated on campaign, side is cleared. He rips over the top and pulls the ball down and goes to the basket, gets right by campaign, gets all the way to the rim, scoop layup, and campaign fouls him. And one easiest Mm -hmm. basket he got all night. And then literally a few possessions later, he gets isolated on campaign on the other side of the floor. This time he's kind of facing the basket from about 20 feet and he rips through to the right and beats campaign to the spot and immediately turns his back to the basket. And then as soon as he turns his back to the basket, he takes a back down dribble and campaign reaches in and knocks the ball out of bounds. And I'm literally like, dude, you just got all the way to the rim on this guy. Like you just overpowered him physically, you know, like, like it's, it's, you know, Chris Middleton is one of the most skilled and polished players that we have in our league. He's a 50, 40, 90 guy at over 20 points per game. That automatically puts you in elite, elite company. But he just, it's inexcusable to have zero free throw attempts through that point in the game and then to have, through, through that point in the series. And then obviously he had a, a three later in the game. But the point is, is like that, the physical aggression, uh, aggression of Chris Middleton is the missing piece. And you could see it. Like I told you, I expected Chris to go off in game three and Drew to struggle. Yeah. That boy was I wrong. Chris continued to kind of do more of the same thing. Even the ones he made were tough. It seemed like in that game. And then, uh, and then Drew Holiday got going. So I don't know. It's just, it's just, it's got to be frustrating to watch for Bucks fans because he's a six eight wing. Like that's that should be a physical advantage for you, not a skill advantage necessarily. If that makes sense. Yeah, and I think Mikael Bridges does a good job on him as well, kind of chasing over those screens, fighting, putting back pressure. I'm looking at Chris Milton's shot chart here. He took one shot at the rim the whole night, and that's the that's the kind of play you're talking about. And I just think that's kind of his game. And Giannis's floor has to be so high for them to win. Um, he had what back to back forty point games. Um, I think they had the stat. Only a few guys have done that. Um, LeBron and other guys have have had multiple 40 point games um in the finals like that's where his floor has to be for them to be competitive uh in in this series and uh i'm not sure if he can continue that maybe he can the way they're defending him i think more eight minutes will kind of uh will kind of kind of deter him a little bit at the rim um it's hard to build that wall with no one back there and again the kaminsky minutes to me just didn't make any sense i'd rather play tory craig at the five and kind of live with just switching um and i feel like mike budenholzer playing with fire 13 minutes for jeff teague is just you're just asking for death in in game four. I just don't understand it at all. Even though he was a plus nine tonight, um, but yeah, like I, I don't. The Bucks, I feel like just shorten the rotation, try to uh, continue Giannis at the five as much as they can. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was the biggest key to me. Eight going out with those with the foul trouble just opened the whole game up for them, man. They didn't have to worry about anything on the other end. Um, they got their spacing. Pat Connaughton hit a bunch of hit a big three as well. Um, they they got their shots to go, and that's usually what happens at home. It's just weird for guys of Drew Holiday and Chris Milton's stature to where like the home and road splits are what they are. It's it's it's, it's fascinating to me when I when I see that as uh, <laughs> see those stats for them. But uh, they'll have another home game, so may- maybe they'll take Game Four. But I have the Suns as well winning. winning that you know, th- this is something that Bill Simmons talks about all the time on his podcast: is the concept of like you know the the last 
the last, you know, frontier of the superstar is yeah. consistency. You know, the, what separates a Drew Holiday or a Chris Middleton or a Devin Booker from the top echelon of stars is the ability to do it every single night. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, and I think we take that for granted a lot of the time with the LeBrons and the ADs is just how, how consistent they are and what, what you can expect from them on a night-to-night basis. And uh, I do think that's interesting. So, you know, one last thing about this game before we move on. Um, so uh, and just to preface this before we even get started, because I want to talk about Giannis for a second. You know, this was something Jackson Frank was tweeting about yesterday. He uh, went on a soliloquy basically discussing this idea that uh, uh, that, you know, we should always – uh, we're, we're too uh, we're too quick to try to contextualize everything that happens in a basketball game within NBA history, and how all we should do is just watch what's on the floor and talk about what's on the floor. Now, I I, I do agree with him to the extent that talking about what's happening in the games is the most important because everything else is fake. You know, like talking about anything that's not actually taking place on the floor is fake basketball, whereas what's happening on the floor is real basketball. So I, I agree with him in that regard. However, NBA history is all about comparing and and talking about how is this similar to what Shaq did in 2001? How is what LeBron did in 2018 similar to what you know, uh, you know, Dirk did in 2011 or whatever it is. Like, that's what we do. We, we, we compare eras. We compare players. Like, we build lists. We talk about who the greatest of all time is. We talk about who the greatest team of all time is. And I think that's okay. I think that that's part of being an NBA fan. I just think that the nuts and bolts of those conversations has to be basketball-oriented, which, which is totally fair. So my question for you is this. Giannis has been incredible to this point in the postseason. He's clearly the best player in this series. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they're going to win, but there's obviously a chance that he could end up uh, uh, you know, going nuclear and stealing this series. So my question for you is, how do you contextualize what Giannis is doing compared to his peers and what they've done in the past? Guys like Kawhi, guys like Steph, guys like LeBron. How does what he's doing stack up or, or compare to what, his peers are doing. Cause if you're going to say Giannis is the best, you have to say he's better than KD. You have to say he's better than Steph. You have to say he's better than LeBron or Kawhi. And so that, that's my question for you is like, what do you make of this Giannis run to this point? So for me really quickly on the Jackson friend, Jackson's my guy. He's a, he's a great dude. Um, but yeah, like everything is contextual. Like everything in life is contextual and that off court on court, Encore is quantifiable, right? Like, we can see what happened. We can go to a box score. Like, hey, this guy missed 10 shots. That's what happened. Off the court, it's subjective. Who's the greatest? All that. Aesthetics. What do you prefer? That's why I try to keep it on the court. Off court stuff, I don't really get into legacy and stuff as all that. But with Giannis, like, for me, I really value playoff performance and, like, finals performance. Like, I feel like I, I hear a lot of these conversations lately. I'm sure you hear, too, hear it, too. Not to, like, move off of Giannis, but people are like, oh, is Zach Levine, Zach Levine, if you play Zach Levine with Devin Booker, the Suns will be exactly where they are. I'm like, maybe. I don't know that, though. But Devin Booker doing it on this stage should mean something. He should get at least the benefit of the doubt. 
like or they say like oh replace Zach Levine with Donovan Mitchell the Utah would still be the number one seed I don't know that to be true but Zach Levine I, I don't know what he would do in the playoffs but just seeing it in person means a lot to me like Giannis doing this puts him on that upper echelon to me this is with like 2015 whatever 2015 Steph who went through the playoffs um KD when he was in Oklahoma City ran through got to the finals like this is up there with that you can't deny the numbers anymore. You just you just can't. As of once, like all that Middleton was Middleton is Batman, whatever they were saying. All that stuff is dead now, I believe. I mean Giannis has pretty much put himself up there. Um and his skill and his physicality, I mean, you have to put him there. You just have to. Guys who have these finals performances are rare. That's why I put what A D did last year in such high regard. I I know people skip over it because of where it was done and the environment, but that's an insane run. If you look at the numbers, look at the performances, the guys he outplayed. James Harden is a surefire Hall of Famer. That dude got outplayed by 80 in a series. Like, that's what happened. You know what I mean? And I just look at that. Nikola Jokic as well, another great player. But people who do it in the playoffs to me means a lot more. Giannis, if he gets a ring with this, it means a lot. It's a Dirk-level ring, in my opinion. Like, Go look at who Dirk beat to run to the finals. It might be a little bit more than this, but that's the kind of run he's on. And, and Giannis's numbers, I think, are even more insane than Dirk, if I have to look at it, um, just from finals to finals. Um, I don't know if that's really comparison. They're totally different players. But, yeah, those numbers are undeniable, man. He, it puts him in the echelon of uh, KD, you know, Kawhi, whoever you want to put him with. Uh, and uh, to do it with this Bucks team, I think we're going to look back at the talent on this roster and I think it's good, but still like his second and third guys, I mean, Chris Milton, Drew Holiday should mean something for him. Uh, he doesn't have a superstar next to him. So uh, what do you see? Like, what, where do you kind of put him, I guess, in those lists? Cause I know you're, you really like to kind of go in and, and kind of compare these, uh, these guys. What do you see from him uh, in well, that list? I, I like comparing uh, uh, players because like, this is, let's just be clear. Like basketball is a sport. It's a team sport, but it's the team sport where individuals have the most impact. And it's also the sport where, you work on your individual game, you know, and see results that can impact the team the most. And, 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 mm-hmm. and I think it's just, it's also just a part of NBA history. That's the reality of it. Like throughout NBA history, players have been ranked and compared against each other. It's part of the culture of the game. And that's just never going to go away. That's just kind of the way it works. Uh, yeah. But anyway, like the way I see it, it's real simple. I used to see Kawhi, LeBron, Steph, and KD in their own tier at the top of the league. And the guys like Giannis and Harden and AD were like right there behind him. Well, now I think Giannis has every bit of as much a claim to be in that tier. Um, you know, Anthony Davis did last year as well, but then he had a huge fall off this year, which, you know, could be effort related. It could be injury related. It could be a combination of all those things. But you can pretty much count on that not happening with Giannis. Like Giannis is going to come out next year and attack the season just like just like he did this year. Uh, but anyway, I think that that's I, that, I think that means a lot to be to be considered in the same tier as those guys is a huge deal. Uh, that said, to me personally, I still think that those four guys are better than him. If, if he has a case over any of them, it's going to be Kawhi um, because he's a similar type of player who had success when every other uh, hole in his game was filled by something that his teammates did really, really well. Um, but I, I think that, you know, uh, it's important to acknowledge what's going on here. Like Giannis, as incredible as he's looked, was outplayed by Kevin Durant in the conference semis and was one inch away from losing that series, even though he had the better team, because Kevin Durant was that much better than him. I think that that is not something I can wipe out of my memory just because Giannis is still playing and KD's not playing. And I think that this whole year has been a referendum on the way that we evaluate players because even myself, I think, leaned too much into 
the team that wins and holds the trophy at the end, the best players on that team, when nine times out of a ten, well, not nine times out of ten, but a significant percentage of the time, it actually doesn't work out that way. But I think I think I'm extremely impressed by Giannis. I consider him a top tier superstar, which is something I didn't consider him to be before. And last but not least, I am because I'm because I've seen the way he's wired, because I've seen the way he's not scared of the moment, because I've seen the way he can physically dominate guys. I am like relatively certain that at some point in his early 30s, you know, 30 years old, 31 years old, 32 years old, he's going to have enough polish where he's going to go on a stretch where he's better than everybody. He's going to, and who knows, maybe Luca's going to be right there with him. Maybe Zion will, who, who knows? But Giannis is going to have a stretch where his brain catches up to his body, and it's going to be frightening, especially if he's on a decent team. Because this guy yeah. is doing all this stuff right now. I, I hate the phrase no bag, but he's doing all this stuff right now and he's lacking polish. And what the mm. polish, it, he'll never be Kevin Durant, but he, he might eventually get to the point where he's a little bit more on the level of like uh, Jalen Brown in his skill set. A guy who can do some more complicated dribble moves. A guy who can get hot from the three-point line or, and be relatively consistent as a jump shooter you know from 15 to 20 feet like that stuff will happen for him and when it does it's gonna be scary and I and I think uh and I enjoy rooting for him and I I think it'll be fun when that when that time eventually comes but I don't think this is his moment I don't think he has what it takes to win this series yeah and I want to bring it back to two things like like uh you kind of said um first of all with him like damn where was I going with this I lost my lost my train of thought um but yeah like that dude is is 26 year old oh yeah there we go you talked about Bill Simmons saying like um consistency right that's what a superstar is consistency like that's everything look at Giannis the last three years like we we talk about his MVP awards we laugh at him because of the way they went on the playoffs his numbers are insane every night his motor is insane it's a generational motor in my opinion the guys don't play this hard as long as he does um he plays hard the whole night he go he carries that bucks team to 60 plus wins i think in like two straight years um his numbers are insane 26 year old like he's gonna be insane at like 30 you know what i mean guys at this age just don't just aren't aren't this guys without this kind of bag as you talk about this kind of like handle don't average these kind of numbers just because they're physical. Like he does have skills. They're just not skills that are aesthetically pleasing in my opinion. And the second thing you said, he got outplayed by Kevin Durant. There's no shame in that. Like, that's, Oh no, of course. Like not. Kevin Durant to me is, might be the best scorer ever. Like there's no, there's no, sh- there's no shame in being outplayed by him, especially through scoring. Like KD to me is a, might be a top 10 player ever. And that might be like his floor. You know what I mean? Like that's how good KD is being outplayed by him is no shame. I, I saw people like, we're like laughing at that. I was like, no, there's no shame in being out. And Giannis like was incredible. Giannis was incredible. He I was. just thought KD was better. Giannis didn't shrink from the series. Giannis just, he, Giannis brought his best punch and Kevin Durant's best punch was better. I thought that that's just the way I interpreted that series. Yeah. And KD is a super polished playoff performer. Forget just regular. He knows exactly how playoffs work. He's been in a ton of them. One, two rings. Like he's a guy that really knows what he's doing. Um, so being outplayed by him is, is no shame. And I agree with you. I think Giannis is going to touch a couple more finals before it's all said and done. I just, that's just how I see his kind of uh, career going out. But yeah, this dude's a, this dude's amazing. And, uh, I think even putting in context, like his numbers, you can't deny them anymore. His accolades, you can't deny them. Two MVPs. Uh, I don't know if he has two defensive player of the years. I, I think he has I think one. I think one last year defense, was his first. Yeah. Last year, defensive player of the year. So, uh, yeah, like I think he's going to be great. Um, and 
that's where his career is heading to. And you're right, at 30, he's going to be a monster. He's 26, yeah. man. 26. That's in, that's insane. This isn't a apples to apples comparison because LeBron was 22 when this happened. But it kind of, but you know, Giannis isn't LeBron, and but he's kind of on a similar type of uh, trajectory, I think, in the sense that you know the 2007 playoff run from LeBron wasn't the playoff run where he was going to win a title. It never was. Uh, he took him further than, than you would have expected under the circumstances. But what the 2007 playoff run was, was a weak Eastern Conference, a Pistons team that was kind of on the way out, some things that broke his way, kind of like what happened with Giannis here. Some things broke his way in this playoff run. So he benefited from some injury luck. And so yeah. what, what what's interesting is, you know, that 2007 uh, run for LeBron, though, what did it tell us? It told us that this guy's made of the right stuff and that soon in the next few years, he's going to elevate his game to a point where he can dominate the league. That's what that told us. And we were all right to have thought that. Well, that's kind of where I am at with Giannis is like, this is like his 2007 finals run. He get, he's getting to the finals. He's probably going to lose to a better team, but he's proving to all of us that he is 1000% the real deal in terms of that. You know, like they were asking uh, uh, Bill uh, Bill Simmons was asking, I think, Kevin O'Connor in his podcast. He goes, do you think Giannis is capable of like being a Pantheon guy, which he considers to be? I think it's like his top 15 players of all time or something along those lines. Well, and they were kind of bouncing around. I think I can't remember. I think he settled on no. To me, that's 100 percent. Absolutely. a Yes, because. You know, to be that kind of level of player, all you need to do is to have like a seven to eight year period of true dominance where you win several championships, several MVPs, so on and so forth. You mean to tell me Giannis can't go from 27 to 33 and and just be a wrecking ball in the league? Of course he can. I, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. He's wired. I mean, he needs to get better. I just think he will. I think he will get better. <laughs> and like... And in terms of his mentality, he's like so he's like this weird hybrid of like Russell Westbrook and Steph Curry, where he's this consummate leader who always is even keeled, but at the same time has this unbelievable motor. And and, yeah. and, and, and so I I'm a I'm a believer in what he can be, and I certainly think he could go down as one of the best players ever. Yeah, and I was just looking at his numbers. He's 29 for 45 in the last two games. Like that's that's <laughs> that's absolutely ridiculous. Like. I, again, like the no bag kind of conversation, I feel like there's a lot of uh, nuance to that. And I feel like there's good arguments on both sides. Like, yeah, he doesn't have a hezzy step back crossover. But his Euro step, like that's a skill you have to like work on and have to perfect. And he understands angles. He understands where guys, if he hits them, where they fall off. Like that's all skill related. And then like you just compare to a guy like Ben Simmons, who number one pick, similar type of game, similar type of uh, trying to attack the rim. And you just watch the mentality difference. And I think that's kind of what separates them too, right? Ben Simmons has decided I'm never going to shoot a jump shot ever. Like, that's just not what I'm doing. I'm going to do what I do. And there's a cap to your ceiling to that. Even if Giannis misses those shots, even though people, Charles Barkley goes on TNT every time and like, don't ever take a three. In Giannis' head, like, why should I not take a three? I work on this crap for hours and hours and hours. Of course I'm going to take one. You know what I mean? Like, the just fearlessness both, is there. It, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, like, again, we don't – basketball is not played on a spreadsheet. You know what I mean? You can't just type in Giannis never shoot a three and he does that. You know what I mean? Like, that's just not how basketball works. We've all played. When you're left open, you shoot. Like, that's just a just like a, from a standard standard basketball. It's just how that works. So it's funny watching that. His mentality is what it is. Like, he's a guy – 
that what drafted I think he's drafted like 13th or some some late kind of first round so his kind of arc is so different that I feel like his success is his own villain in this way like he was too good too early like like people put championship or bust expectations on him last year dude was like 25 like guys don't even win their first house like 27 28 I thought that was always kind of crazy the Bucks were too good for their own good like that's what I thought was funny that's just kind of where air we and Luca's gonna go through this in the next two years even though he's not gonna be 23 for another like three years or two years or whatever it is like these, all these guys because of the era we're in, and their numbers are insane. Uh, I think we're going to look at Luca this way in in a short time too. Yeah, those are the two guys though. Those are the two guys that uh, that I think are going to run the league. Um, probably and obviously not together, but on different teams. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, the last thing I'll say about Giannis before we move on is like I'm actually okay with him taking jump shots uh, as long as it yeah. doesn't dominate his shot selection. But I think he should take five jump shots a game. I think he should take one or two threes and you know one or two turnaround pull ups and then an, uh, another you know off the dribble seventeen footer when the defender sags off of him. If for nothing else, just to keep them honest, uh, yeah. vari- variety is what keeps a defender off balance. So you have to be able to, you have to be able to, you know, I, I tweeted something about this out yesterday, but it's like, you know, no fake that you make works unless it's built on the foundation of an actual threat to score. If right. I, if I'm posting you up and I do a shoulder fake to my left side, if I haven't shown that I'll shoot over that shoulder, then you're going to ignore that fake, you know, if, if, and vice versa, you need to, everything needs to be built on the foundation of something that's real. Uh, and that the defender has to think about. And so if you're Giannis, an in-and-out dribble is the foundation for a pull-up jump shot because the ball is in your left hand and, you're, and you're, you look like you're about to get into a shot. If you can't at least make the defender think about exiting his defensive stance to take a lunge step forward to contest the shot, then yeah. you're not going to get by him. You have, to, you have to have that fear of every option that's available. And so that's why – and that's what makes Ben Simmons so easy to guard is you don't even have to – if he if he if he comes if you go under a ball screen and he's standing butt naked at the top of the key like you don't even have to think about the fact that he might try to make you pay for doing that and that just makes him that much easier to guard. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have anything else on Giannis or the Bucks or the Suns before we move on to Team USA? Uh, no, I think that's it. Yeah, I feel like we we really got into uh, it's gonna be a fun game four, so we'll, we'll see. It should be a fun game four. And in Milwaukee's favored by four, so I will be on the Suns, and we'll see if my streak of being right continues or if I lose all my money. We'll see. <laughs> anyway, did you, game, did you bet on game three? Yeah, I've bet everything, and I've just rolled the winnings into the next one. So so far, I've turned fifty bucks into four hundred bucks. We'll see if that ends up being oh man sixteen hundred by the end of the series, or if I'm broke. One of the two will happen. I'm not touching it. I know if I bet Suns, the Bucks are going to win. So I'm going <laughs> to leave it alone. I'm going to leave it alone. Uh, okay, so there's a couple of things with this team USA thing that I want to touch on. Uh, we're going to talk about the officiating shortly. Uh, but the thing that I wanted to start with is just this, this team construction. So I haven't watched, gone back to watch the Australia game yet, but I, but I watched the Nigeria game. Um, and I probably will go back and watch the Australia game just because I think Australia is a fun team to watch too. They're such an interesting group of, of, of ball players. But anyway, so this is the thing that I think is super interesting, and I'm going to use a, a personal uh, an experience for me personally just to kind of explain this. So, you know, when I was in junior college, I was an all-conference offensive player. I've said this on this podcast before. And then when I came to Arizona Christian, the last school that I played at, we were one of the best teams in the country. We were top five in the nation in AIA, and we had two All-American guards. And all of a sudden, they didn't need me to score. 
And what was interesting was I really struggled early in the season trying to be a scorer in a third role, which was so Mm -hmm. different for me, and I had some issues with it. But I remember there was a film study, uh, a film uh, session that we had about a third of the way through the season, and we had a really deep team with a lot of talented guys. The guy behind me coming off the bench was an all-conference player the previous season at the same position. And the, the coach got up and he goes, you know, uh, one of the reasons why Jason is still playing, even though he hasn't been making shots at this point in the season, is he's defending like crazy and he's always doing the right thing within the offense and the play. Like he's not, uh, he's running the plays properly. He's not breaking off. He's staying within himself. That's why I'm continuing to play him because I can trust him. And it, it, it kind of resonated with me in the rest of the season. I almost never shot. I would take two or three shots a game and I would just guard the other team's best player. But I played, I started and I played, you know, the vast majority of the game because of it, because I took a larger role that I had in the past and I reconfigured it into a smaller role to fit with better players to win in a team concept. And, you know, there's been a lot of analytics guys going nuts on this Team USA thing, being like, points per game is overrated. A lot of these players are overrated because they're putting up big scoring numbers. That's bullshit. Scoring is every bit as valuable as it's ever been. The ability to put the basketball in the, in the basket is extremely valuable. However, within a team concept, that's just one of the things that you need to do. You actually need to do a great many things to win a basketball game. You need to be physical at the point of attack defensively, especially in FIBA when they allow you to be. You need to be able to rebound. You need to be able to uh, to knock down spot-up threes, not crazy off-the-dribble threes. And what's happening with Team USA, in my opinion, is you've got a lot of guys who are used to playing one role, which is this alpha offensive role, that are now being forced into a tertiary or an even further down the, 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 the food chain type of role, and they're not doing all the dirty work that you have to do in those roles in order to succeed. Zach Levine is used to being the guy who takes a million shots, and everyone else on the team does all the dirty work. Well, guess what? On this team, Zach Levine needs to be more like Mikhail Bridges. He needs to be more like a guy who uses his athleticism as a wing defensively and then takes shots in the flow of the offense. Everything should be catch and shoot for him. Everything for him should be attacking closeouts. Everything for him should be simplified to a specific role. And it bothers me because like, I feel like all of the people involved with Team USA should know this because this is literally what happened in 2008. If you remember, they lose in 2004 and they lose in 2006. They lose twice and the whole thing became exactly what I'm saying. Too many stars, not enough role players. So if you remember, they brought on uh, uh, what, what were the who are the guys they brought in? They brought on uh, the lefty from the Bucks, um, Michael Red, as like yeah. a spot up shooter to join the team. They uh, uh, on the 2012 team they brought in Jason Kidd. On the 2018 they brought in uh, I think it was Mike Miller was on that team too. They brought in role players. They brought in guys to play roles instead of strictly bringing stars. And then all of a sudden, here we are 10 years later, and they've completely forgot that that, that lesson that they learned. Like, does what I'm saying make any sense, or do you think I'm crazy? It does. Really, I just want to preface this. These are two expedition, expo, exhibition games. Like, they're not going their hardest as well, right? People want KD to defend like it's the NBA Finals. He's not going to. He knows, like, what the uh, consequence of losing these games are, uh, which is nothing. Also... I think the lead, the world has kind of caught up a little bit. Like I, like you watch Australia play and it's so like this modern offense. They're running these double track screens with for Patty Mills and he's coming off 
shooting like he's Steph Curry. Like I, I feel like the the world also has kind of caught up, but like I don't know. Looking at the roster construction, there should be more than enough talent to win. Like these other teams have a few NBA players. We have all NBA dudes on this team. They should be able to work it out. You you can't score eighty three points with like Dame, Katie, Tatum, Beal playing for you. Like these are offensive juggernauts at what they do not just good offensive role play this is not, not like Dennis Schroeder this is like the top the top offensive level players I, I think they'll figure it out um, I think their talent is still enough uh, that's why I'm like I don't know how to really blend I know the roster construction isn't perfect but like they have a team full of like all-star level dudes that should be able to figure it out high basketball IQ guys I think Draymond's the guy that can do the stuff you're talking about, the little stuff, the rebounding, um, trying to protect the rim, uh, playmate, kind of move the ball, be a ball mover. Zach Levine, I think Zach Levine kind of, last night at least when I was watching, he got shots that he usually gets those dribble step into threes. I thought he took those. Dame is like the de facto point guard on this team. Um, He's the guy running all the ball screen action, trying to get people involved. I think they'll figure it out. Um, It's not a perfect roster. The talent discrepancy isn't like it was in 2008. 2008, they had Kobe, LeBron. I think Durant was was Durant on that team, or he wasn't drafted yet. He was in 2012. He was, he was on 2012, yeah. 2012, yeah. So that 2012 team, Kobe, LeBron, Durant, they were beating teams by like 40 and 50. Like in 2012, I remember those games. I don't think this team will do that, but there still should be enough talent to kind of override that it's been two games i expect the chemistry to pick up i expect their them to know each other's tendencies it felt like in it felt like a little bit more serious all-star game to where they're trying to you know be a, a little bit more unselfish than they're used to um that's kind of what i saw did, did you see a little bit of that as well yeah i mean the i think that it's better to lose early and to build that urgency when things don't matter than to yeah. skate by in some of these games to convince yourself it's not a problem and then to and to succeed later. To your point, they have guys on the roster that will do the dirty work. They just have to do yeah. it. I mean, th- there's been a lot of talk about defense on this roster, right? We've, we've all mm-hmm. heard it. I'm sorry, but if your starting lineup has Bam, Jason Tatum, and Kevin Durant, you should be locking teams up. A lot of this, exactly. is, a lot of this is effort. Like you said, they aren't giving their best. The one no. thing that concerns me about that, though, is – and you can tell me if you disagree, Raj, but, like, the they're never going to be able to match the effort. So, Or I shouldn't even say the effort. The the It's way more important. This is somebody uh, – uh, 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 Jay is his name. He's a buddy of mine on Twitter. Uh, he played Division One ball out in, in California, I think. And he tweeted this out yesterday, and I thought it made perfect sense. He's like, it just doesn't mean the same to these guys to play for USA that it does for the Nigerians to play for Nigeria or the Australians to play for Australia or for Luca to play for the Slovenian national team. Like it means so much more to them to do what they're doing than it does for the Americans to play for the USA. There's a lot of reasons for that that we're not going to get into, but as far as they're concerned, it's just less important. So that's going to be a factor throughout this entire run, in my opinion. And you're right. The world has caught up. The other teams are like Niger- the Nigerian team is ten times better than they were ten years ago. Oh yeah, you know, the, the, the USA beat them by eighty, I think, the, the previous time they had played them. So like, there, there's just more talent globally, and they give a shit, and the Americans kind of don't, and so that will be a factor throughout the whole process. Now, I I'm with you. I think that as this progresses, Popovich is going to be able to get stars to buy into roles. You're going to get guys of the caliber of a Jason Tatum 
to embrace being, hey, like this is KD and Dame's team. So I'm going to be a 3 and D guy. You know, you're going to get guys to embrace all of that. Bam is going to be like, you know, maybe I'm not Miami Bam. Maybe I'm more of like a DeAndre Ayton type of role where I'm just letting them do all of the the offensive work and I'm just going to bruise the hell out of everybody with my physicality. You know, I think they're going to I think they're going to get into their roles and I think they're going to get it going and I think they're going to be able to win this tournament when it comes down to it. Yeah, I think their roles will be more defined as we go on here. Um KD was still amazing. He hit like a bunch of really tough three-point shots that he, that he hits. But you could tell they're like in a relaxed kind of mode and the other side is going hard as they should. Nigeria played their ass off like they they wanted to win that game. That was one, and people are saying that's one of the biggest upsets um, that they've seen, right? In in uh, in FIBA basketball, um, Australia as well. They wanted to win that. You could tell Joe Ingles was fired up. Patty Mills was fired up when they played the USA. Go, if you watched you watch KD and Dame's body language compared to like the Australia players. You know, I mean, they they want to win that. They're fired up. They want to be Team USA, and you know, the other side is just kind of kicking the ball around, trying to. You know, trying to. I'm not saying they didn't want to win, but it just didn't feel like as intense as I think an actual game would. And and they could still lose. I mean, this team isn't. I still think they have a huge talent advantage, but it's not like it was um, in previous years. The world has definitely caught up, and these teams practice together, right? Like Australia, this team knows each other. You could tell their actions are crisp. They know exactly what they want to run. Um, they know what they're doing on the offensive end. Meanwhile, like Team USA is still trying to figure out the Kings, still trying to figure out what they want to do. That's what I saw the difference in these first two games. Um, the effort and those teams know each other a little bit more um, than this one. That's super interesting that you bring that up because I, I was going to say that earlier too. Like the, the These national teams generally bring the same guys to every tournament. Yeah. And Team USA is so radically different every time they send a team because it's like what what uh you know what sponsorship type of deals are you running over the summer that are gonna make it so that you can't get out like oh well uh space jam is happening so i can't play this year whatever it is you know like literally that's the issue that a lot of these uh american players deal with that the, the guys overseas don't have to deal with and so they bring the same group of guys um how do you think i i don't think officiating is the reason why the americans are struggling i do think that they have struggled with it but i think they can win in spite of that what did you make of the officiating do you think it's impacting their ability to win these games do you like the way fiba is officiated what is what has been your your thought process with that oh i love the officiating i I love that they look at the ref and the ref just tells them to play on like i absolutely love it they it's uh, pretty much like uh, open run kind of where like you can't just call these bogus fouls. You see Damon Beal drive, trip on their own leg, throw the ball up, try to draw a foul, and these refs are just not buying it. Um, I love I love the kind of physicality that they also allow. It just feels like a little bit more I'm like not. I know it's still the modern game as well, a lot of high pick and roll, but they allow a little bit more hand checking as well. You can kind of put your hand on the defender um, as they used to. I tweeted out 83 points is inexcusable when people are telling me, like, well, it's the FIBA rules. FIBA rules does not stop Damian Lillard, Bradley Beal, Jason Tim, Kevin Durant from getting baskets. USA scored one point in the final four minutes and 30 seconds of that game. Like, that, that doesn't, shouldn't happen for a team with this much offensive talent. I don't care what the rules are. I don't care what the physicality allow. Like, that just that just should not happen. I don't think it will. Um, but I love I love what the refs are doing, man. Uh, people want the FIBA refs to kind of move into the USA. Um, I don't think that's how that works. I think they're allowed uh, to kind of call the games this way. 
Um, they don't. I saw Kevin Love try to draw a foul at the three point line. I don't know if you saw that, where like he pump faked, try to put his body into the defender and shoot a three. You know, just the unnatural shooting motion, and the ref absolutely ignored it. Did not even give it any kind of any kind of daylight. So um, I love what the refs are doing. I don't think it's why. I think it's an adjustment, but like I don't think that's why they lost these first two games. I think it hundred percent has to do more with effort and also continuity of the teams and the other teams playing a lot harder, like you said. And uh, that's where I see. I don't. Th- I think they'll adjust pretty quickly to these uh, FIBA rules. Yeah, I, I I'm with you. I can't. It can't be used as an excuse. Um, yeah. As far as like the, uh, I absolutely wish the NBA was officiated in this fashion. Um, you know, I do disagree with like. There was one uh, exchange that I saw on Twitter where, you know, where people there's the and I've seen this kind of talking point happen a lot over the last year because officiating has been such a problem in the NBA. But it's like, who is to blame? Is it the rules or is it the officials? And so many people want to blame the league in the rules. But I, Mm -hmm. I do I do think the officials carry a good amount of the blame because they are officiating in a way that is hurting the league. And the reason why I say that is, guess what? you're not allowed to foul people in FIBA. That's not the rule. The rule is not you're allowed to grab a dude who's driving past you. The rule is not if Kevin Love pump fakes, you're allowed to run into him while he's shooting. Those are not the rules. What's happening there is the referees are showing discretion. They are saying amongst themselves and to the players, if you try to foul bait, I'm not rewarding you. It's a psychology with the refs that they are imprinting as their interpretation of the rules in FIBA. You're not allowed to foul, but the refs are saying, if you are trying to fool me, if you're trying to flop and make it look like you're getting fouled, I'm not going to reward you, reward you. And that's what the the, uh, uh, basketball, that's, that's the way that the NBA needs to approach this is it's not about changing rules. The rules are fine. There are a couple rules they need to change. Like, you know, obviously, uh, you know, something silly, like if you attempt to draw some sort of jump shot foul that's unorthodox, yeah, we check out outside out of bounds instead of free throws, that sort of thing. But in terms of the the nuts and bolts of the way the game is is set up with the rules, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. It's officials that are baited into fouls from players. They play that game with the players and it's a mutual, and the players are partially to blame for the record. The players and the officials have built this relationship where they have allowed you to manipulate them. And, and in FIBA, that relationship doesn't exist. They don't put up with it and the game is better for it. You know, if, if, if Kevin Love shot that exact same three without doing the crazy pump fake lean in type of deal and the dude hit him in the exact same way, I think he gets the call. It's, it's part of that psychology. They're fighting against ref manipulation, which I think is good. And so I think, I think that's the part that needs to be fixed even more so than any sort of rule change, if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know if you caught the world cup game, the England versus um, Italy world cup, not world cup, sorry, Euro final. Um, Don't I heard about it, but I didn't see it. it. Yeah, so just it's so funny watching that and seeing the refs. Like even the refs there are even more of a like, like guys will uh, in soccer. I guess guys, I'm new to soccer. I guess so. Like that the guy would the guy would fall and then like he would hold his knee like in driving pain, right? Like driving pain, like absolutely hold it, like screaming. And the ref would just be like, no, 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 we're not doing this. Yeah. And then five, and then like. And then two minutes later, the guy will get up and just start playing again. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, and, and they do this a lot, but the ref just does not go for it at all. They just kept trying to move on. I think they called like two, foul, two 
flag or whatever, you know, red cards, sorry, yeah. two cards or whatever. Whatever they're that. called, so soccer fans. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> two cards or whatever the whole time. So it's amazing to watch that. And then also watching FIBA, kind of the refs. Those refs don't have a relationship with the players, right? NBA refs, they go to every game. The players know them, know them by name, know their family, whatever. And, and you talked about it in the NBA. Superstars in the NBA can impact a game more than any other sport. And when that happens, like there's domino effects to that. So superstars also have relationship with the refs. They have a little bit more, you know, they just know them a little bit more. It's just funny watching Bradley Beal and Dame fall and then look around for like a rep they know and there's no rep they know so they have to like just keep playing is it's so funny to kind of watch that and i would like that a little bit more in the nba for sure i i don't know how you uphold that um especially when these refs have been in the league for 20 30 years you know the same refs have ripped the final i think they said like i forgot who the name was the referee but he was having like 20 finals or something like that like he's been repping the same way for a very long time um and i just don't think that's gonna switch anytime soon uh, so yeah, I, don't know, I don't know where they go from there human beings are creatures of habit man and, and, right. and, and that's but <laughs> that's what i figured she said yeah anyway <laughs> anyway uh my dad used to say this to me all the time like people as they get as they get older it's far less likely for them to change so i agree with you i, th- I think True. it's something that, that that gets complicated you know uh at the at the end of the day I'm okay with players taking a, a gamesmanship from players. I'm okay with players taking advantage of the way things are. That's part yeah. of just a desire to win. We talked about this with Chris Paul last week. However, I think part of the league's job is to legislate gamesmanship out of the game because gamesmanship should not determine who wins. It should be who's the better basketball team. So like I'm pro taking advantage of it while you can. However, I think it's the league's job to get it out. It's important for the league to find out how to stop this sort of thing. Guys, James Harden grabbing an arm and throwing him up in the air or, or Dame Lillard just throwing his body on the ground trying to draw a jump shot foul. All of that, in my opinion, they need to try to get it out because it's not basketball. You know, that, and, and then guess what? Dame's really good. He's going to find a way to be effective without it. That's just the way that, that, that's the way that those top echelon stars are. Uh, did you have anything else on Team USA before we move on? Uh, the only thing was like, I think they're going to figure it out. And I think it, the craziest thing was like, I'm, I hope people are joking about the KD can't handle the pressure of a second exposition game. Like, I think those takes are really funny and kind of crazy. I guess that's kind of what Twitter is for. But, uh, but, um, but yeah, I think that's pretty much it, man. I don't know what, I don't want to take too much from two exhibition games. Um, it's hard to really break down. I felt like they were just playing a friendly with, with another team that was going really hard. So I, people should calm down. USA is going to be fine. They're not going to go out in like the first round or something though. They'll be fine. I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I actually thought about this yesterday. Like it sucks so bad. Now, first of all, Twitter trolls are Twitter trolls. You're never going to satisfy yeah. them, but it sucks so bad that KD was so incredible in that playoff run. And here he comes into this really funky basketball situation, which by the way, is just really hard. I mean, it, like it's, It's, yeah. it's really hard for guys after never playing together before to just come together and figure out how to play basketball. So I, I, yeah. I, I, I sympathize with Kevin Durant because he's going to get, if they do happen to lose, which is certainly a possibility, he's going to get blamed. And I don't, I don't think that's fair, but at the end of the day, like you, cause we know why Kevin Durant's there, Kevin Durant's there. Cause he loves to play basketball. 
and he exactly. had an opportunity to play more basketball. I bet I wouldn't be surprised if he plays in four years. Like this is just the way Kevin Durant is, and it just sucks because he's going to get blamed for this if it goes south. Don't think that that's fair. Yeah. Um, really quickly before we get out of here, uh, I wanted to do two things. We're going to quickly touch on Ben Simmons, and then and then we'll tell our stupid stories. So, um, the Ben Simmons news came down. Not a shock. We all expected this. Let's just make this really simple. Where do you want Ben Simmons to end up? Man, I have no clue, to be honest. I would like a team where, like, I would have loved him in Houston, kind of, where they can kind of build around him and kind of build around his strength as, like, a driver, transition player, um, finding shooters. But, like, watching the playoffs, I wonder how much that's more theoretical than, like, actually who he is. Like, if you give Ben Simmons his own team, is that how it would work? Or does he still become really, like, kind of shy on the court or, like, you know, kind of melt under, like, real playoff-type intensity? I I have no clue. I think he does need a new situation and looks like he's going to get that. So I I, I wouldn't like to see him on, like, some super rebuilding team, though, like, like Orlando or something where, you know, it's just like – if you get Ben Ben Simmons there, I, it's just like it's it's it doesn't really help your team, in my opinion. He needs a good team around him. He needs shooters. I really don't know. How about you? Do you have like a team that that you would like him to go to? So I just want to see what it would look like if he played in a true five out system where he was able to get to the rim or kick out to shooters because those are his strengths. His strengths are he can yeah. get to the rim and and he's a great passer. He's great at finding openings in a defense. You know, uh, in the times when he had success in Philly, a lot of it had to do with when Joel Embiid was down early on and he was just the guy. Uh, The team that that I've seen brought up that makes a lot of sense to me is Minnesota. I think it'd be really Mm. interesting because of Carl Anthony Towns. If you could somehow do some sort of swap where Ben Simmons goes and I don't know if you send D'Angelo Russell back or, or, or a bunch of draft picks or whatever it looks like. You're capitalizing in that case on Ben Simmons being cheap right now because he just played so poorly. Yeah. Uh, but Minnesota would be a really interesting one because it'd be a true five out system. He'd be running pick and rolls with a guy who can pop to the three point line and shoot, you know, 43% on wide open three point shots like Carl Towns. And there's a lot of talent on that roster with a guy like Anthony Edwards. You know, there's some spacing issues there because he's not a great shooter, but I, I, that, that would be the team, uh, the kind of team that I think would make sense. I just don't want to see him go to another place where he's going to have the exact same problems that he had before, if that made sense. For sure. And the side of this that, like, I see a lot of people bringing up trades, like, Philly's in win now mode. Like, they can't replace Ben Simmons with, like, three first round picks. That doesn't do anything for him. Joel Embiid's in win now mode. That Philly team is in win now mode. They're playing Tobias Harris a bajillion dollars. You know what I mean? Like, that's where they are. If you swap Ben Simmons, D'Angelo Russell, like, to me, like, if I'm looking at it as Philly, like, my offense gets a bit better. Like, I have a better pick and roll ball handler. But, my defense gets insanely worse, right? Like, and, and that Philly team to me is built around this like rugged defense and Bede Simmons kind of manning the, manning the helm with that. And then um, kind of getting enough offense from there. I don't know where they go. Like who is, who or who is trading Philly a good enough player that replaces Ben Simmons um, to where they're better. Like those options are so low to me. Uh, again, a team like Houston, I don't know what they would have to give up. Again, like the team you met in Minnesota, D'Angelo Russell is probably the most likely one for salary matches. But I don't know if that makes Philly better. Like they're in win now mode. That's what makes this so interesting. Usually, like you don't trade your second All Star. Like you know what I mean? Who's twenty? I don't know how old Ben Simmons is. He's like twenty something years old. 
but they absolutely just cratered him in the press. They cratered him after the game to where you have to trade him. You can't bring Ben Simmons back. Um, so it, it's they're in a weird situation where like everybody knows they're trying to trade him, and like so you're gonna get diminishing returns on that in my opinion. But I don't know. Like the Warriors would. Would they take like a Draymond back? I don't know how that would work, though. I don't and know. Why, why? Why would they do that? Why would Portland want Ben Simmons to take the ball out of Damian Lillard's hand? You know, like why would the? Uh, you're right. Like for both for for it to make sense for both teams, it needs Philly to stay relevant, exactly. and it needs and it needs the team that they're going to to actually need a ball handler because that's what Ben Simmons is. And I, I don't know, man, it, it's, it's, it's really tricky. I don't know if you go to Sacramento and I don't know, try to do like a deer and Fox type of deal, but I don't know why they would do that. Like, it's just, it's, it's tough because Ben Simmons presents a problem to whoever takes him. You need him to have the ball in his hands because he can't do anything off the ball. Right. So that, that, that's the, that's the issue that's presented. If he, if he doesn't have the ball, he has to stand in the dunker spot. You know, and he becomes basically like a like a Andre Roberson. You know, like it, that's that's what he becomes if his if if he can't be have the ball in his hand. So I'm with you, man. It's a it's a it's a tough one. I don't I don't let, necessarily know what the answer is. Let me throw one at you. So like I, I see Philly fans. You know, they're they already have their Dame photoshops or whatever. If if Dame kind of requests a trade, I'm not saying he would, but like if he did, is like Simmons and Thibel enough? You think, or do you think they would get more for Dame on like an open in open market? Like I I feel like that's the kind of deal where like Portland kind of feel good, like they get a budding superstar in Portland where you know free agents don't really come at 24 years old he's locked into a contract and you get a young guy like Tybal maybe Philly throws in a couple more things but I feel like that's the kind of deal where both teams can kind of walk away from the table and feel like we got something but Ben Simmons played so poorly like when you think now when you look at it you think Ben Simmons for Dame you're like oh man that's that feels like a lot for Dame I mean not enough for Dame so what do you think about that one because that, that's the one I've been kind of thinking about um that's the only one that really makes sense to me from like where that would work money wise. And the team has a team built for him kind of, where you can where Portland can still kind of edit their roster to kind of maneuver around Simmons um, since, and then they'll obviously move McCollum, I'm guessing in that situation, but like, that's the only kind of real deal I see. What what do you think about that one? Have you, have you seen the title odds for next year? Mm-mm. So did you? So the title odds for next year show Golden State as the third most likely team to win the t- championship behind the mm-hmm. Lakers and Nets. Um, which think to yourself: Is there any reason why Golden State should be considered better than the Clippers next year, or the Suns, or uh, or Denver? Like, no, right? Because Golden State is basically getting back Clay Thompson, who is more or less coming off two incredibly severe injuries. Right. They're, they're, the reason why Vegas has Golden State as the third favorite is they know that if a star comes available this summer, no one's beaten their offer. Because if you get if if you're uh, trading with Golden State, what you're getting back is probably going to be What's Wigan, Wiggins, Wiseman, seven and fourteen. So you're getting a a, sal- a salary filler type of dude in Wiggins. You're getting. James Wiseman, who was one of the top prospects in last year's draft, and you're getting two lottery picks this year. There's no offer out there that can match that, well, including, question- including Ben Simmons. 
So what I'm saying is the way Ben Simmons could bring back someone of Dame's caliber or Bradley Beal's caliber is only if both of them get traded. Because if one of them comes available, Golden State's beating you. Because why would you want Ben Simmons if you could have Wiseman and two lottery picks from this draft, if that makes sense? Because Ben Simmons is like, we kind of already know what he is, which is an extremely flawed star. Wiseman could very well be another futuristic center. The two picks from this draft could be anything. Like, you know, I I, I have a feeling Vegas knows Golden State's going to win the bidding war for the star that comes available this summer, if that makes sense. It does. I just I, maybe that's a great offer for Bradley Beal. Uh, but like my my thing was that I don't think Wiseman showed enough. Like Wiseman, I think is a, has a lot of potential. It just I don't think he showed enough in that first year to kind of warrant to be like this center of a trade package. Seven and fourteen are great picks, but like fourteen is middle of the first round. Seven is late, not late lottery, but like if you're Philly, what does that do for you? You know what I mean? Like you offer Ben Simmons to the Warriors, they offer you Wiggins. No, no, no. I'm not saying you. I'm not saying Philly would trade for the Golden State package. What I'm saying oh, okay. is, so you had mentioned what if Philly went after Dame? Oh, I see. And, okay. and what I'm saying is, if Dame was available, Philly's not winning because Golden State has a better package. What, I, what, I, what I'm explicitly saying is that Philly um, can't win. Philly can't win a bidding war for a superstar unless two of them become available because the first one golden state's going to win in my opinion they're going to have their pick if both if both bradley beal and damian lillard this summer come out and say we want to trade then golden state's getting whichever one of those two they want and then ben simmons might be the one who closes the deal on the other but if only beal is available golden state's getting him if only dame is available golden state's getting them in my opinion because of the fact that their trade package everyone else is going to be able to offer distant draft picks years down the line they might be able to get a young star, but Golden State's the only one that can give you the young prospect in Wiseman and the draft picks and a solid role player, someone like Andrew Wiggins, or they could probably sign and trade a, an Ubre into there to fill salary or something along those lines. But Golden State has the treasure trove of assets. that They, they have the godfather offer, which is why Vegas has Golden State as more likely to win the title next year than Phoenix. Or yeah. the Clippers. You know what I mean? Like, look at how good Phoenix is. And Vegas thinks the Golden State Warriors are more likely to win next year. You know what I mean? No, yeah, for sure. I guess, like, just from my perspective, I feel like most like teams in markets like Washington and Portland, they want the surefire star. Like, I feel like they would, like, just this is my preference. Like, I feel like they would take Ben Simmons over, uh, over that offer. But you might be right. I mean, Oklahoma City obviously has the crazy draft capital where if they wanted to, they could throw 30 first round picks at some team and say, you know, try to reject that offer. So it's just interesting, um, how that works. I follow Warriors people and like they kind of <laughs> I think they feel like the Warriors aren't going to trade both of those picks really? right just at, well at least just like the consensus I'm seeing like cuz they just hired two draft coach um, developmental coaches I think and at Kenny Atkinson and someone else um just showing like I think they're really going to try to invest in they're trying to do both right they're trying to win now and also invest Which in young stupid. players and when you do both you do neither right <laughs> yeah, exactly. so, so but i feel like that's where they're going with this um i think the lakers try to do this a little bit too right when they had lebron that first year and also try to develop lonzo and ingram and you know and kuz and 
acoustic on the team but like you know they try to do both and then you find out you do neither doing that um you don't win enough to to go in that route so i don't know i i feel like that's a good offer i just don't think for a winning team that makes sense maybe for washington but like so uh, fantasy world fantasy world lakers they need to trade lebron for some reason would you rather have ben simmons and philly's draft first round draft picks for the next seven years or would you rather have wiggins wiseman and 14 and 7 if I'm trading LeBron James, I need a lot more than no, no. I'm just, I'm just, I'm oh, just yeah, saying yeah. fantasy. Which package yeah. do you think is better? Yeah, if you're, if you're a team that is somewhat relevant like that, that's so interesting. I feel like if AD's still on the roster, I would probably still go with the Simmons package. I go with, okay. I take the star and then just figure the rest out later. I, Seven and fourteen aren't going to help me in the next two years, three years. Like I'm in win now mode. I have AD on a max. I'm, but so, if I'm Washington or Portland and yeah. I'm losing Dame or Beal, I'm going full rebuild. Yeah, that's very so true. So I'm going to prioritize the Golden State package, I would yeah. think. No, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. If you're those teams, you would get the two picks plus Wiseman, probably plus even a little bit more, in my opinion. Like, like yeah. Beal goes Beal goes on the open market. Like, I think every team is going to throw uh, their best offer. Um, the Warriors, maybe the Warriors offers the best. I don't know. I haven't really looked. I haven't really seen the market, but yeah, it's interesting, man. I I don't know where Simmons goes, but he's definitely not in Philly, right? I think we agree with that. Next year, he'll be on. Some I I think he'll be gone unless unless everyone's stingy with their offers, but we'll see. I I, I tend to think that it's more. Everyone always says, like, oh, wait till the trade deadline, wait till the trade deadline. I tend to think that it's way better to get a guy in for training camp, and yeah. that's the urgency. You know, like, I think part of the reason why the Lakers looked so good with AD in 2020 is that they went through a whole season with a, a training camp rather than trading for him at the previous trade deadline, you know, and, yeah. and having it be crazy in that regard. Um, did you have anything else on this, or do you want to get to our last topic before we get out of here? Yeah, I think that was good. On okay. Simmons, I'll be quick because I know you got to go to work. But I, I, this was a hilarious story because I, 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 th- I like to think that that you and I are fully functioning, intelligent <laughs> human beings, and and but every once in a while we have our our incredibly stupid moments, and I've had more than uh, more than enough for one lifetime. Uh, but. I had never run out of gas before. For the record, I didn't technically run out of gas. But what happened was is I was going to go golfing with my brother, and I was driving across town, and I was running a little bit late for the tee time, and I saw that I only had like seven miles of range. you know. And obviously, this is a different era. You and I talked before the podcast, like how do you know when you're going to run out of gas? Like You'd see the E symbol, and you know you can go some amount past it, but you right. don't know how far before you run out. Well, the range is like a number, and I'm a very analytical thinker, thinker. So when I see, oh, I have seven miles of range, they're literally saying, like, I can go seven miles, and then the thing's going to stop, you know? Right. So, so my wife and I had plans that night. So I get in the car after golfing, and I call my wife. And as I'm talking to my wife, I drive by a few gas stations. I get off the phone with my wife. I'm on a major Tucson street, okay? Major Tucson street, major cross street that goes across the entire city. I get on it, and I get off the phone with my wife, and I look down. I only have five miles of range. Then I go, okay, I need to stop at the next gas station I see. But I'm on this major street, so I'm just going to go. Well, I start driving, and I make it a few blocks down. All of a sudden, I have two uh, two, uh, miles of range, and I haven't seen a gas station. Mm -hmm. And and I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. So I quickly pull over in the side of the road, 
into a into a little shopping center and I'll pull up the GPS and there's randomly for whatever reason on this big stretch of street no gas stations in this like entire <laughs> little C- uh, stretch of Tucson and so I'm like oh my god I'm I literally can't get to a gas station right now I look up the GPS and I look up all the gas stations nearby nothing's within four miles I literally had to Uber uh, in 107 degree heat to a gas station I get to the gas station and there's no gas can. I look on the shelf, it says gas can, there's no gas can. I go to the lady, I'm like, can you check in the back? She doesn't have one. I had to Uber to another gas station, get to there, there's no gas can. And I go up to the guy and I'm like, hey man, can you please go look in your back stock for, for a, a gas can? And he's like, he's like, well, we don't have back stock, but we've got a shed outside. <laughs> but I'm the only one working today, so I can't leave the store. And I'm like about to lose my mind. I look at the guy and I'm like, I'll watch the store. Can you please go out there? I'm stranded. <laughs> you know, and then finally the guy like goes out and he comes back in with a gas can. And, uh, and then he's all like, uh, yeah, I found one. I'm like, yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. I buy it, uh, fill it with gas, drive all the way back. By the time I got home, it had taken me two hours to do like a, a 30 minute drive. And again, as Raj and I were discussing, and this is something I'm hoping that somebody can answer for us. If the range says seven miles, does that actually mean seven miles or does it go to zero and then you enter some weird twilight zone where you can keep driving? Because I don't know. Because I could have risked it and driven to the gas station. I just didn't want to get stranded on the side of the busy street. You know what I'm saying? So I, I don't know. Would you have kept going or would you have done what I did? I would have definitely kept going and I have kept going before. So my car as well. So it will say like, It'll say 20 miles, and then at like the at like 11 miles, it'll stop telling the number. It'll just do this little like uh, it'll start beeping, not beeping, but like it'll show like a flashing. So it won't okay. tell me like one mile left or zero mile left. After like it get past 10 miles left, it's like yeah, go to a gas station. But I've definitely like um, gone close to the got really close to like zero for sure or past it i don't know the exact number i don't think it's the exact one i was telling you before we recorded i've seen like a news report like they they went like 30 miles past zero or something before it finally um went out so i think you would have been fine i understand you not risking it but i think you would have made it home for sure you think so? I, or to the gas station at least a hundred percent because they know like the human kind of like the, people are gonna try to test that so they can't make it an exact in my opinion, like it's just not how that how that works. But I think it's smart that you didn't test it to not get you know stranded there. But I think you would have made it home. Uh, in my opinion, uh, yeah, you would have definitely made it home. <laughs> it's it's so funny because like I turned thirty in less than a month. August 9th mm-hmm. is my birthday. So I made it almost 30 years without that happening. And my wife never let me hear the end of it because I've given her crap before for letting her range get too low. But she's never yeah. run out of gas like I did. So, yeah, yeah, anyway, it's just funny. We've all had our moments. But, like, man, that was, like, I was, like, for that entire hour and a half saga of me looking for a gas station that had a gas can, I have – I was talking so much shit to myself in my head about how <laughs> such an idiot I was. I was so frustrated, dude. It was ridiculous. I was so upset with myself. Anyway, did you have a story of something stupid that you've done that you wanted to share? Oh, 100%. I, I was going to stick to the car, I guess. So, like, back in college, like, I used to, um, you know, in college, you stay up late. You do, you know, assignments and stuff like that. And this is, I don't remember how old I was, like, 18, 19 years old. So, I used to live near the school, and I'd drive home on, like, so I'd have class, let's say, from, like, 
till like one and I'd go home and go back for like a class around three thirty, Right. And so I was always dumb. Cause like, I'm like, what am I going to do at home? I have to drive 15 minutes, but like, it's just like a, it just feels good to go home for a little bit during yeah, the day. Yeah. And then like, I'd be so sleepy though. So like I drive, like I'd be tired and I get home and like, I go back. So it's one time, like I'm right in front of the school and it's like a red light and me stupidly, when you're sleepy, you tell yourself a lot of things. I'm like, it's a red light. I'm going to take a quick nap. No. I swear. So I'm like, I'm going to take a quick nap for a second. So like, so I should have put the car in brake, to be honest, but I didn't. I'm like, my foot's on the brake. Like, I'm going to know. This light's no longer than two minutes, you know? So like, I swear. So I like, I close my eyes for a second. And like, you don't know what's going on. So like, and then like, I wake up to a boom. I'm like, oh, Damn it. No, you hit the I car in this, front of you. So this, this is right in front of the school, and it's just hilarious because, like, the guy I actually ran into, he was, like, he's actually a teacher, which is funny. And he's uh, he's like, yeah, what happened? I was like, oh, I don't know. And so, uh, yeah, and it didn't mess his car up at all. Uh, like, his car was fine. But, uh, but, yeah, that's one dumb thing. And I've never did that again, ever. I was like, I'm never, ever, ever going to try to close my eyes <laughs> when I'm at a red light. It's sad because I was, like, right in front of the school, too. So that's, that was the oh. sad part about it. But, Dude, uh, that's completely yeah. hilarious. But I think, you know, I think that life has a way of putting you down sometimes to ke- to kind of keep you even keeled and keep you humble. Oh, yeah. Like every time, like, like it's, I feel like this with basketball, like every time I go on a stretch where for two weeks, I'm just busting everybody's ass and no one can guard me. I always have like a random bad day. And I feel like that's like the basketball gods like saying like, you're not shit, Jason, you're not shit. <laughs> you know? like, like, I feel like that's just part of the process, but like, I, that's hilarious. Cause like I, I it, well, I, I have another one that I'll share on another day, but like, I think that's just God's way, nature's way, whatever you want to call it's way of of just reminding us that we're not all that and, no, and, we, yeah. and we need to, we need to stay grounded. Um, of course. But anyway, Raj, I really appreciate you taking over an hour today um, to hang out and I uh, guess game two or game four is tomorrow. So we'll plan on Thursday morning for now. Thursday. Let's do it. All right. Thank you everybody for listening in. I will have the podcast version of this up shortly. Enjoy the rest of your day and we will see you on Thursday. Thanks everyone. All right, bye.